Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we watched Alexander's Ragtime Band, the fourth nominee in the 1938 awards, starring Tyrone Power and Alice Faye from In Old Chicago, as well as Don Amecki, I don't really know how to say his last name, and Ethel Merman and some other people. And it was a musical that attempted to have a plot. <laughs> yeah, it's so wild because what I thought the plot of this movie was going to be gets out of the way in like 20 minutes for this will they won't they between two people that I don't care either way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh... Apparently, Russell Maloney, who was the film critic for The New Yorker in 1938, described the plot as small, persistent, mosquito-like irritation, which is almost so spot on, I don't know that we need to do the rest of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Apparently, they fucking got that one right critically immediately in 1938. Yeah. I do have to say, my expectations for this film, though, were so low that it actually ended up that I felt a lot more sympathetic to this movie than perhaps it deserves, because, one, the movie is ostensibly about the history of jazz, with absolutely zero black musicians at all, and given the last time that we saw Tyrone Power and Alice Faye in in Old Chicago... It was one of the more loathsome films we've ever seen. My expectations for this movie were like, we're going to be playing Fuck This Movie Bingo, or I'm going to regret that we've already used up the Bengal Lancer card. And it was just, I mean, it was fine. There is a moment of blackface that is completely unnecessary. I mean, not that blackface is ever necessary, but it's like not even in context. It's just like a backseat moment where somebody has blackface on. But for a movie that completely ignores the contributions of black musicians to jazz, which is, you know, most of the history of jazz, it's not that horrible. Yeah, to make a movie that's ostensibly about the history of jazz that has no black people in it, it made about the smartest choice it could with that, which is to not actually be about the history of jazz in any way at all. No, it's just about a jazz band that kicks off during the ragtime era and then ends in nebulously the 30s. Yeah, I guess we're in present day by the end of it, but like... So the plot, such as there is... (laughs) There is a guy named Alexander, played by Tyrone Power, who... Well, actually, his name is not Alexander, it's Roger. Right. But he ends up becoming Alex. He is a professional symphony violinist, and his aunt and his teacher, who is, like, the cliched German music teacher, are very supportive of him. No idea where his parents are, doesn't really matter. He has a good friend, Charlie, who is a pianist, and they have a band, and they want to, like, play in clubs. They go to Dirty Eddie's, which is this, like, not amazing saloon for an audition, and forget their music. But luckily, Alice Faye, who plays Stella, 
has come in with sheet music for the song Alexander's Ragtime Band, been told that she can't audition, left the music on the bar, and they pick up the music and play this song that is Alexander's Ragtime Band. Thus, they get their name. She goes up and starts singing with them. And they're hired, but as an outfit. And this is the point where I thought the movie was going to be like them working their way up and the like struggles of becoming more successful and like kind of almost not really though at all. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, (laughs) there's not a whole lot of struggles. They just work their way up. And pretty fast. Yeah. They write some songs and they get to play in better clubs. And Stella goes from being like a trashy saloon girl to a quote unquote lady, which is kind of an annoying misogynistic moment in this movie. But even that is like so light compared to some of the other misogyny we've seen in similar movies and the last pairing of Tyrone Power and Alice Faye that I was like, "Ah, okay, whatever. Charlie falls in love with Stella, writes her a song, she sings the song in the performance, and then it's clear that actually she's in love with Alexander, despite the fact that they've been bickering all this time about the direction of the band, which is a whole five minutes of the movie, maybe. Yes, but it is the closest thing Roger slash Alexander has to a character. Yes. Is him just being a horrible controlling piece of shit to everyone else in the band. And to the movie's credit, there is a moment pretty early on where they're going to go on stage at like a classier club and she is dressed up in a certain way and he like takes off half of the things that she's wearing while she's wearing them with great criticism and she's very mad and somehow despite the fact that he's literally like stripping articles of clothing off of her it does not come across as sexual harassment it's just that he's like kind of fastidious fancy boy (laughs) yeah i mean i would not say it's sexual harassment but i just i don't know i really hated him i thought he was a real harassing jerk Not like sexual harassing, which is a very high step up since in old Chicago, but like... It It was not like, take that off because you're my woman and you're going to be presented the way that I want you to be. I felt like he would have done that to anyone in the band. Uh, yes. I'm not sure how much that helps. No, he's still a jerk. I'm just saying that it's not rapey. Which, again... Extremely low bar, but yes. Anyway, Stella sings the song that Charlie wrote for her and then runs off stage. And then Alex is like, oh, she's in love with me and I'm in love with her. And then also runs off stage, kisses her. And then the next scene, Charlie is hanging out with them and is like, nah, it's okay. I get it. Which is so weird. Charlie is so fucking weird in this movie. Yeah. He's like the space where a human being needs to be for there to be a plot. But also if he has any like heft, if he takes up any space in the world, then the plot falls apart. So he's just this like placeholder of a guy. He's the Baxter who never goes away. (laughs) But he's also not even the Baxter because he doesn't even compete for it. That's true. He doesn't even fight for it. Like, we'll get to it. He gets the girl and then it's just like, eh. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So the next day they're going to breakfast. They're having a champagne breakfast. And they find out that Charles Dilligan, who's some big New York producer, is in San Francisco 
and they play a trick on him where they call him and ask him to come to the show and he's like no I'm not doing that and then Charlie calls him and pretends to be this chef from a restaurant that somehow he knows he really liked and tells Dilligan that he's working now at the Cliff House which is the club where they play and is gonna cook baby lobsters for him because that's his favorite dish. Dilligan comes to the show of course, is enchanted by Stella, but only offers Stella a job in New York. And Stella's like, yeah, great, I'm gonna take it. And then eventually, you know, he'll have a place for you, Alex and the band. Alex throws a fit and is like, no, fuck you. We're done. Bye. Because again, controlling asshole. Charlie comes in and has the most character he has in this entire movie, which is going, hey, you know that was a really bad idea, right? And that's, like, that's it. And then I guess Charlie also quits the band, but it doesn't really matter because World War One happens. Yeah, I gotta be honest, I confessed last week I sometimes look at my phone during these, and this was the most I'm looking at my phone movie of all time. You gotta stop cheating! It seemed like he just, like, threw a hissy fit and then signed up with the military. Which, to be fair, the protagonist has done in fully four movies that we've watched already. Yeah, I mean, this is apparently a thing that happened, or at least a thing that people thought happened. So he joins the army and goes over to Europe and then Roger is like oh we should put together a show that we will take to Broadway because the Navy also put on a show on Broadway they put on their show Stella comes to the show and she wants to see Alex but then he won't see her and then in the middle of the show they are ordered to go to war and Stella like tries to run after him but you know there's too many soldiers marching through the aisles of the theater which is so weird (laughs) this whole sequence is where I just like fully checked out because I finally understood that the structure of this movie was going to be me caring about the two of them getting together yeah which is a problem it's a huge problem because I don't care if either of them live or die (laughs) Let alone that they're in a happy romantic relationship. I cared about Stella, I guess. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I did until we get to that wild ass scene with Charlie. Here's the thing. I cared about whether or not they got together until the next bit where it became totally clear that all of the complications that have been thrown in their way are not actually complications. Right. Alex comes back from the war and goes to Stella's show that she's doing on Broadway to a rehearsal and like confesses his love for her and that he's sorry and he fucked up and she's like, oh, didn't you hear? Charlie and I got married. And then Charlie comes down and is like, hey, how's it going, Alex? Great to see you. These, by the way, are seemingly the only people in the early 20th century that have never heard of writing a fucking letter. (laughs) Like, they never contact each other ever, ever, ever about the most important events of their goddamn lives. And like... Yeah. And Charlie is like, oh, we should get together for dinner. And then Alex leaves and goes back to his hotel and breaks his walking stick over a chair and is really upset. Then Charlie is like, in their, I guess, apartment or hotel room or whatever, is like, you know, you still love him. Let's just get a divorce. And that is the entirety of how that 
conversation goes. Yeah. Like, like one, he brings it up out of nowhere. She does not go like, it's tearing me apart. I must be with him. And two, she doesn't go like, no, even one time. No. She just goes like, yeah, all right, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it's like the most chill divorce of all time. All Charlie ever says about it is, we gave it a shot, didn't we? He says that like five times. And it's like, no, you actually didn't. You really didn't actually give it a shot. <laughs> no, literally the one time that anything comes between you, you're like, eh, 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 eh. <laughs> That's your whole conversation. That's your shot. Fuck you. Except I also like Charlie. Charlie's kind of the one character I really sympathize with, except he's such a pushover that I can't. Yes. Here's the thing. The wild thing about that scene is I feel like that scene is bad, obviously. And it's like a bad choice in a weird way, but it's mostly a bad choice because it's like, I kind of can't figure out which of the two of them I dislike for it. And so I end up disliking both of them. Right. Because there is no actual blame, because it's just like, again, this placeholder of a person who was going to keep her from being with Roger, who then just stops doing that for no reason. That's the scene where I fully go from just kind of hating Roger to kind of hating her, too. Yeah, that's fair. By the way, whenever we say Roger or Alex, that's the same person. <laughs> right. His actual name is Roger, and he complains a lot for the whole first act that his name isn't really Alex. But then he stops. Yeah, because it's a show name. Then Roger forms a new band with... Some of the guys from the old band and this new singer, Jerry, played by Ethel Merman. Stella goes down to see them play and they, like, make a lot of googly eyes at each other. But then she finds out that they're sailing for Europe for a tour and assumes that he's involved with Jerry because she's a woman. Which, to be fair, Roger then is like, hey, Jerry, we should get married. And Jerry, to her credit, is like... Nah. <laughs> uh, no, you're not in love with me. I'm not in love with you. You're in love with Stella. This is a terrible idea. You're just doing this because you are in pain and no. Yeah. They go on tour and then Stella, who apparently like can't find a tour list, even though she knows that they're on tour, quits her show in Chicago and then goes to Europe to try to find them, I guess? It's very unclear. What anyone's plan is post-divorce seems to just be like, well, the plan is there's about 40 minutes of this movie left. Yeah. People just do things. They don't really even bother to try explaining why. She just kind of floats around Europe, like, singing in restaurants for change. And then at some point, Alex's band comes back to New York and they get a gig at Carnegie Hall where they're going to play swing music for the first time ever at Carnegie Hall. And Bill, who is one of the guys who was in the band with them, tries to get Stella to come to the show. And Stella's like, no, nah, that's OK. I don't want to, you know, I can't. I can't go. And I'm going to I'm leaving tonight. So Bill, who runs a restaurant, is like, yeah, just stay here. I'll be back in like 20 minutes. I just got to go run an errand. He runs down to Carnegie Hall, tells Jerry backstage, like, Stella's in town or we're gonna, I'm going to get her to come. Then Stella like hops in a cab because she doesn't want 
to stay in the restaurant any longer, I guess, despite the fact that she told him that she would stay. And the concert is being broadcast live on the radio. The taxi driver drives her around because she doesn't tell him that she wants to go anywhere. She's just like, I just want to drive around. Yeah. He drives through the park and then takes her to Carnegie Hall because he recognized her and then won't let her leave. It is the... I was looking at my phone a lot, but I also like for the first half of the movie would go back and go like, well, surely I missed something like I, I, I should stop zoning out and I should pay more attention. But no, people really just do things for no fucking reason for like this entire movie. Yeah. And like the cab driver is not involved with anyone in any way. It's just, oh, I recognized you. So I feel like I have to force you to go to this place. And it's like, but they didn't get famous as a band together. Right. So how does he even know? Yeah. He's their biggest fan, which is still creepy, I guess. Like, it's... Mm. Yeah. Then Roger introduces Alexander's Ragtime Band, the song, and says that he wasn't going to play it, but he's going to because it's for somebody really special to him. So she runs backstage and Charlie notices her while he's playing the piano for the opening of the song and, like, tilts his head for Alex to look. And Alex sees her and gets her and has her come out to sing. She sings Alexander's Ragtime Band, and then they kiss, and that's the end. Yeah, I. here's the thing. I told you just before we started recording that I wasn't sure I knew what the ending of this movie was, and I think it's because I just assumed it was this. <laughs> like, I watched it, but, like, my brain wasn't processing the film anymore or something. Like, I watched it. I knew I w- was still really paying attention, but for the part where she was at Carnegie Hall and the taxi driver was being a weirdo. It was so weird. Oh, my God. It was, like, dangerous weird. I was like, what? <sighs> this guy has kidnapped her. <laughs> yeah, it was extremely strange energy that I thought the movie was going to have to explain that, like, Oh, he's gotten paid off by somebody. No. Nope. He's just... He's just... Just... Weird. Yeah. <laughs> because, like, why would... Is he, like, fucking... Ugh. Did did Sam Quantum leap into his body? Like, why would he think to do this thing? <laughs> like, I... It's so strange. Yeah, it's super weird. Ugh. I just assumed the ending was they get back together and sing the fucking song. And then was like... Is that the end, though? Do I actually know that for a fact? Could it possibly be? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is extremely predictable, except where what you know is coming is so obvious that they don't even bother putting up any conflict between the eventuality and what's happening. I will say, like... The musical numbers are actually quite good. And really what this movie wants to be is just a 40-minute review. Yeah. And it would be so much better if it were. It would be way, way better. It would be way better if it was, like, more of a traditional band rising to fame movie. Like, we spent... Excuse me. (laughs) Wow, it's that boring. (laughs) Mm, That's good radio. It would be better if it was just a bunch of scenes of them, like, working their way up. 
there's conflict in the band and like nobody ever actually quits the band but they're all like upset with each other and they've got to like pull together for the big show at the end that's going to prove that ragtime's a thing that's here to stay or whatever. Right. Instead of this weird structure where it tries to become a romantic comedy and then everybody just gives up. Like everybody just goes, meh, for basically every development for the last hour of this film. Including, like, getting kidnapped, getting divorced, like, just huge life events. Everybody's just like, yeah, okay. Yeah, no one fights for anything in this movie. Never. Everything is just a surrender. And yet, they still end up together. So, like, whatever. The musical numbers, though, are quite good. Most of the music is Irving Berlin Ethel Merman is fantastic. She has the fun one the the fun one The one funny scene in the movie. The one where she's singing about the devil. Oh, she, that's a good number. But she's also, she's great kind of drunk in that one scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's the only recognizably human performance as well, where she actually does this really great job being like kind of drunk and kind of wanting to have a conversation you could tell nobody else at the table wants to have. Yes. And... It's great. Yeah, I mean, it's... I don't even really have anything to say about this movie. It's so low energy. All of that surrendering results in a tremendous amount of low energy. And you think at the beginning with this fight that Alex has that it's going to be one of those. Where it's like these two people have very different ideas about what this band is supposed to be. Just bicker constantly And there's a love triangle, and they realize that they are really attracted to each other, but they also hate each other's ideas. And it's so down-tempo. All of that happens, and yet, there's no fever pitch that ever happens in this movie for a movie that's about undeniable, deep, and desperate love that's not even tragic, because, like... There's no tragedy. I'm not entirely convinced it's undeniable, deep, and desperate love. That's true. They do all just give up so easily. (laughs) Yeah. And people just tell them they're deeply in love and they go, okay. Like that one scene where they're like together in act one is the only evidence we have. And that was like 20 years ago by the end of the movie. Yeah. Ethel Merman really is the only thing that saves this movie from being a prescription for insomnia. Yeah. I keep confessing that I didn't pay very much attention to this movie. This movie punishes you for paying attention to it. I don't think this movie wants you to pay attention to it. Yeah. It's certainly not making the choices a movie would make to keep your attention. I think that's totally fair. (laughs) Like I say, I spent some time trying to pay attention to it and then go back and like try and understand what I missed because the plot was jumping around so much when he just suddenly is in army. The movie just was like, no, actually, fuck you. There was no reason like over and over again to the point where I just really did stop caring. I would be like, oh, they're at Carnegie Hall now. Oh, she's got. Oh, he has a new girlfriend. It's not a new girlfriend. She doesn't like him. Who cares? Like, I <laughs> I would just get bits and pieces of this movie and assume that was all I was ever going to get anyway. And after that plot summary, apparently I was right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <sighs> I feel like we could actually just rate this movie at this point. Yeah, that seems totally fair. Um, th- th- Three or four, somewhere in there. Like, 
it's not horribly racist. Like it's. I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a four for the vast majority of the content and knock a point off for the random blackface. Yeah, that seems fair. Three seems about right. This is below par, but it isn't like we should destroy all of the film stock or anything. No, because I think that telling you not to watch it after this review is um, pretty obvious and clear. <laughs> if you're the biggest Ethel Merman stan of all time, maybe. But, like, I literally cannot think of another justification for watching this movie. I mean, like, fast forward <laughs> through all of the non-Ethel Merman scenes. Right. It's not like you need this movie to have Irving Berlin in your life. <laughs> no, there are so many other options. <laughs> I mean, Ethel Merman is great in it. She's also probably in it for a sum total of, I don't know, like 15 minutes of the 106 minute runtime. Yeah, she on screen doing stuff is probably closer to 5-10 minutes. Yeah, but you don't even need to see that. Just watch her performances. Yeah. Not a great movie. Yeah. So next week. Next week we have the, should be the sequel to Three Smart Girls, but isn't. Four Four Daughters. Daughters. Which, it does have what's-her-face in it, right? I believe so. Not the youngest one, does it? No, it doesn't. Okay, yeah, I just assumed that it would have what's-her-name from Three Smart Girls slash 100 Men and a Girl. Yeah. But it does not have Deanna Durbin in it, but it is a musical about four sisters who are a family performance group, which, again, feels like Deanna Durbin should definitely be in it, but is not. Yeah. And Claude Rains is their dad, which, like, that's weird casting. Oh, I don't know. I was going to say, like, that's the one casting that really gives me hope. I mean, I'm excited about it, but, like, Claude Rains is something other than the scene-chewing villain is uh, going to be interesting. That's fair. Maybe he's a terrible musical dad. You never know. That's true. He might be an awful stage father who is totally abusive to his kids, which definitely seems like a likely thing in 1938. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, until then... Yeah, I honestly do not have enough information to tell you if this was a movie or not. I abstain. (laughs) I feel as a responsible critic, I should abstain from telling you whether this was a film or not. I will say that it was some things that were on film. That I will say. (laughs) Again, I don't think I can say that, but I am heartened to hear Susan say it. (laughs) All right. Goodbye, everybody. Come on and hear, come on and hear Alexander's ragtime band. Come on and hear.